This is Paul. Welcome to the Things I Didn't Learn in School podcast. For those of you that are newer to these conversations, the podcasts are one of three things that Still Press puts out. There's also a weekly essay that comes out on Substack. You can sign up for either the free or the paid versions on my website, paulpodolsky.com. And there's also a book, Raising a Thief, and another one, Master Minion. And if you enjoy these conversations, I think that you will enjoy the books and the essays as well. And so with that, thanks for listening, and let's get into our conversation. Welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. For people who don't know you, why don't you introduce who you are, then we'll jump into the book. Sure. I'm, my name is Bill Gifford. I'm a, I'm a journalist and author, and um, I've actually written three books. first one was a biography of a guy who traveled to Russia in the 18th, American guy who traveled to Russia in the 18th century and got kicked out. The first uh, American spy. Nobody bought that. It's still good. It's called Ledyard. Uh, then I wrote a book called Spring Chicken, which was sort of a personal, um, kind of lighthearted investigation of uh, the science of aging. And basically, from the point of view of a 45 year old who's starting to wonder what the hell's happening to me. And, and can we slow this down a little bit and enjoy life a little bit more? And then I uh, hooked up with uh, Dr. Peter Atia, and over a long and difficult period of time, we wrote um, a book called Outlive, which is currently number one New York Times bestseller and uh, just sold just sold its millionth copy. Holy, holy mackerel. Yeah. Reading it was pretty uh, interesting. One of the things I love about this podcast, first of all, it's great to reconnect. So Bill and I know each yeah. other for, for like back in the 1980s. We went to high school, same high school. Yes, we went to high school. And so we've got all sorts of stories about that time. But the um, one of the things I love about uh, doing a podcast is that it forces me to do like intensive study of different topics for the people that come on. And so I spent time, you know, really reading and highlighting a ton. Oh boy. It's all my Kindle here of, of your book. Let me just say to the listeners some of the things that I came away from the book with, and then you could uh, correct because you wrote the darn thing as opposed to okay. me just reading through it, flipping through page to page. And then Use that as a starting off point and tell me, you know, all the things I'm missing or, or you know, how we should deepen that. Sure. So there's a, a couple of big things I took away uh, from the book. The first one was we spend a lot of time in modern medicine now. And there's a lot of money once there's basically a car crash, cleaning up the car crash. Right. But we don't spend a lot of time thinking about like, how do I get it, make sure I don't get into a car crash to begin with? Right. So there's things of the equivalent of like wearing seatbelts and driving at the speed limit and not driving when you're exhausted that you might no not notice day to day, but they reduce the risk massively that you're going to have this huge disruption in your life. So that was, I thought that was a really useful framing. And then he talks about the big adult car crashes, if you will, primarily four of them which is a heart, dementia, diabetes, or cancer. And that seemed like a good, good framing. Though the question is, is really what can you do about these, these things? And 
you and he go into great depth about the research this way and that. But that first first sort of point was stop thinking about your health in terms of, you know, I need to get this checkup or do I have the symptom? It's almost like day to day, what can you be doing to reduce those odds? And that for me was a super powerful concept because a lot of stuff that I now think of, oh, it's like an indulgence that I do this thing. It was like, no, it's not an indulgence, you idiot. It's reducing the odds of having one of these health car crashes. So that was my first sort of insight. Exactly. And all of these um, diseases, which we call the horsemen, the four horsemen of longevity, they all they all began way before you realize it, way before even yeah. we start even thinking about them medically. Like, for example... The uh, like the atherosclerosis textbooks are full of um, illustrations of of the progression of of the disease, heart disease, um, and arterial disease. But a lot of them are, are from um, people who died in their twenty in their twenties or thirties, and they already have the wow. beginnings of atherosclerotic plaques in their arteries. It's already beginning, so. They think it begins basically like, you know, in your teens. If you have a predisposition to it or, or everything. I think we all have a predisposition to it. Yeah. It, it's like, it's one of the sort of flaws in our, in our biology. You know, we're not, we're not wired to live to be a hundred. <laughs> That's right. Like if we're lucky, we might, but. You know, evolution or natural selection doesn't really care. Like once you get to the age of reproduction, then it just kind of like takes its hands off the steering wheel. And it's like, okay, you're, you're kind of on your own. If you basically look back, so if you look at, there's, there's literally wandering around for called 100,000 years. Then there's actually settled into some sort of communities for 12,000 years. Up right. until about 100 years ago, you and I would be dead. By now, most likely. Likely. I'm 55. You're you must be 56, 50. What are you, 56? Yep. Mid yep. 50s. Yep. So we'd be, what was the life expectancy? Maybe not 1923, but go back 1900. It's gotta be close to it's gotta be close to where we are right now. We're we're beyond it beyond for it. 1900. I think it was yeah. like in the mid-40s. Right. But here's the thing: um, we actually can live if we escape like infection, being eaten by a tiger or some other, or being stabbed by somebody or, you know, one of those like acute causes of death. Um, we actually can live into our seventies and people in hunter gatherer societies who don't die of an infection, you know, it's rare. They, they can live to their seventies and eighties. It's just, there's so many acute causes of death that, that, that will trip you up. And actually, medicine has done a pretty good job of, of of heading a lot of those off medicine and you know laws stuff like that. That's what you call medicine two point Yeah, we call that medicine two point um, And I'll I'll get to that. But so you're probably not going to die of an infection until you're super old, right? Even COVID, you know, disproportionately killed people over 80. Mm -hmm. um, so we've kind of got that under control. And like, if you get stabbed, you know, you can go and get stitched up and 
not die of an infection. Uh, so we kind of got that under control. Um, so the problem starts once you, once you get up towards, you know, 60s, 70s, then those chronic diseases come into play. And so now, like if you look at the table of causes of death in 1900, it was probably like pneumonia, um, you know, traumatic accident, um, you know, other infectious diseases, uh, things like that. And now it's the ones you mentioned, heart disease and cancer are like number one and two. And then a little bit after that is um, diabetes. And diabetes isn't really like a cause of death. It's like, we'll get to that too. But diabetes is kind of like a risk factor for the other three, including dementia. So those those four sort of come to the fore. Probably most people watching this will will face one or more of those conditions, you know, it, towards the end of their life. I know. Statistically, that's brutal. I mean, it's just a fact. I mean, I look at that stuff. And one of the things I one of the things I started calculating when I was in my fifties is how many months I had left to live statistically, and really thinking about that, like how did I want to spend those months? The yeah. the, the other thing that th this book makes a real focus on things you can do that are in your control: sleep, diet, exercise, and emotional health. Sort of your your pillars there. And then there's also a lot of testing and metrics that go beyond right. what I was, what my doctor uh, checks on me and the things that I, I check. In other words, like, so there was, did you come away writing this thing? Like at first, one of the first things they, they one of the things struck out at me because I do uh, competitive endurance sports is what your VO2 max has a high correlation with when you're going to die. Yeah. And so, and then yeah. I looked at it and I was like, my VO2 max isn't nearly high enough, according to Peter T. And Bill. I was like, I got a problem. So, the, um, well, talk about the, the, what you can do in your control. And also, are you now doing like all these additional tests? You know, he's having you, even if you're not diabetic, you should be testing your sugar. You know, with those, those, I mean, there was a lot of additional scans, checks, and stuff you could do. What did you come away with, this friend? Right. So, back to the timeline point, um, you know, all these diseases take a really long time. So, and they're hard to treat yep. once you have them. Yep. So, it's important to do stuff early, what you can to prevent them. Unfortunately, we don't completely have a handle. Like, we don't really know how to prevent cancer apart from not smoking. Right. So it's kind of about how do you how do you reduce your odds of of getting these things, and especially Alzheimer's, which is you know there's no no treatment for. So. And it's just brutal, just yeah. brutal. Yeah, like yeah. So like he says, our... or you guys say in the book, how much that terrifies most people, and it's certainly yeah. a fear of mine. Yeah, and if you have it anywhere in your family, I mean your odds get worse yes. because we know that there's a genetic component and it's sort of multifaceted. So yeah, I mean, there's somebody in my family who's got Parkinson's disease. Mm. Makes me think about that. So prevention is, is super important. Question is, question is how, um, and, and, and that's kind of what led us to this medicine 3.0 mm -hmm. model where Instead of in medicine 2.0, you're fixing your broken arm. 
you're treating an infection, you're treating stuff you already have, right? After the car crash, cleaning up the mess, and pretty good at that. Um, but you can survive a lot and medicine 2.0 will fix you right up. But to tr- deal with these longer term diseases, we need a medicine 3.0, which takes a sort of an, a longer view of the timeline and thinks about earlier intervention to steer somebody away from the path to cancer. And that's, you know, smoking is a perfect example. Like you, if you smoked in your twenties and then stopped, you have taken yourself off of a cancer trajectory and onto a healthier trajectory. Um, so a lot of those tests and, and things like that are, are really built or organized around trying to assess somebody's risk and trying to reduce risk where they need reducing. And let's see, I'll start with, well, we, we just talked about heart disease, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's caused by these uh, cholesterol carrying particles, not so much bad cholesterol, but these particles called a- that are tagged with a protein called APOB, APOB. And this APOB is like, it's like, it's almost like Velcro. This is really simplifying, but it, it's flying around your, in your circulation and it will stick in your artery wall and it can go in, but it can't come back out. HDL, the good cholesterol can go in and come back out. So this stuff goes in and then it starts piling up and then that kind of, you know, long story short, leads to problem. Here in the U.S., if you go to your doctor, they'll give you the good cholesterol, bad cholesterol test, right? right? HDL and LDL. But here's the problem. LDL, it's the same cholesterol, right? Like they, they change, these, these are particles and they, they, they exchange cargo. So when an HDL gives up its, its cholesterol to an LDL, it's not like the good cholesterol somehow becomes bad. It's the particle that becomes bad. And the problem is people have different sized particles and different concentrations of these particles, LDL, which are tagged with APOB. It's getting confusing, but so in the book we, we talk about, imagine you have like, let's say you had like 2,000 pounds of, of nails, right? And you have to take them down the street. And do you want to do it in like one pickup truck? Or do you want to do it in 2,000 of those little scooters, right? Those little rental scooters that people zip around on. Mm-hmm. And each one each one has like a Gen Z person on it with a pound of, of nails. Like, which way do you think you're going to end up with more nails in the street, right? On the scooters. So if you have a... So those are like the APOB particles. So if you have more of those particles, there's more chances for stuff to like get into that artery wall and start to cause problems. And then it oxidizes and all this other bad shit happens. And then, you know, down the road, you get a big, big fat plaque and, you know, it's gnarly. So I I had a blood test like a month ago Mm -hmm. and I, you know, insisted to the telehealth doctor that I needed, I want the APOB test. Mm -hmm. And so I get it. Right. And it's like, Mm -hmm. okay. Um, and lo and behold, I get, I get a bill back 
for the $25 for the APOB test. It's not covered. Classic. Glad I did it. But so we don't even, you know, we, we don't even, it, it's like, there's not, it's like we're not even trying to, and there's tons of evidence showing that APOB tracks more closely with risk than LDL much more closely. Right. But it's like, we're not even trying to, to solve the problem here. Right. Yeah. It's obsessive. And, and do statins help the APOB stuff or no? Somewhat. Right. Somewhat. They're, they're geared towards overall LDL, which is like the total amount of cholesterol. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't matter so much as I kind of just went through, like if which if is it's, why there's some in a bunch who, of little tiny particles. This is always yeah. like the story of like the Eastern European person who like eats sausage for breakfast, and theoretically their cholesterol would be through the roof, and they kill over dead. And like at ninety, you know, they're like working and like bees or something, you know, they're like cultivating honey, and you're like, how could that be? And it's that that genetic thing they must have, right? And there's a there's a high there's a sort of a shockingly high percentage of people who die from heart attacks and who have heart attacks who have like perfect or, you know, LDL that's within the guidelines. Right. Same thing. It, it, I think that it was either your book or somewhere else who said, who said that most, something like the majority of heart attacks or the more, majority of heart disease is diagnosed at sudden death. I was like, okay, that's a little bit late. It's something like one third of um, heart disease deaths where the person, the first symptom is the person dying. So that tells you that we haven't figured this out. We're in, like, we're not even close. Like we've made some progress, like we've reduced mortality, but we're not there yet. And then another culprit, I'm just going to, another culprit is this little particle that like, you know, your doctor probably doesn't even know about called LP little a. And that's like a little devilish little cholesterol particle that, that is just, super nasty. And, and, you know, that's the thing that can lead to that, that first heart attack with no, no other symptoms, no other sign of of trouble, but it just, it's like, it's, it's superpower is, is basically causing, um, arterial plaques. And so that's like when you read about these pro athletes that ought to be in stunning shape and they just drop dead at something like that. Or is it maybe that's a structural well, heart thing? I, I feel like that's often like a structural okay. issue that, that went undetected. So there's the there's a there's the expanded blood panel thing. That what what are the other there was what did you think about when you were writing with him about that? Are you now getting your your sugar checked like a diabetic? I did that. I spent a few months on um, uh, continuous glucose monitoring. Mm-hmm. I had a little Dexcom mm-hmm. uh, sensor in my upper arm. Mm-hmm. So people thought I was a type one diabetic because yep. that's who typically yep. uses those. It's an amazing device and it doesn't even like, it, it just stamps, it's got a tiny little filament that samples your, and you may remember this from high school chemistry, the interstitial fluid <laughs> or biology, sorry. Um, and it, it figures out your blood glucose. And I wore that for a few months and um, that was enlightening. Um What'd you find out? So I found out that um, certain foods that I very much enjoy are just are, are just kind of kind of deadly in terms of like the the height of the the, the glucose spike that they 
that they create. So, you know, I love my favorite thing to eat in the morning is a toasted cinnamon raisin bagel from New York with cream cheese. Love that. Nope. <laughs> Glucose goes up to like 250. <laughs> it's crazy. But then, okay, I'm, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat vegetarian. So I went out and I was in DC and I went out and had vegetarian tacos. And, and those were like even worse. I think they had potatoes in them, but like, I was like, geez. So what do you end it's, up being okay eating after that? I mean, the, the diabetic stuff is avoid a lot of breads and starches because it's super high glucose. Yeah. And so you would have been better off for breakfast having like two fried eggs. Yeah, essentially. You know, and, and it, it does, um, I mean, there's a lot of science that suggests that if you have a lot of these like glucose peaks and valleys yeah. in your in your in your day or in your week, that that that's that that's bad for you, and that yeah, you know you you keep having to like pump out insulin to like beat the glucose down and get it out of your blood and store it somewhere safe. Unfortunately, the safe place is fat which we'll talk about, but these, these repeated glucose and insulin spikes, there's evidence that, that that's bad for you. Now there's a little controversy, controversy about that from the sort of evidence based medicine people. And they think they say, Oh, well, there's no, there's no randomized clinical trial that shows that the continuous glucose monitoring, uh, in healthy people does anything. And, and like, we disagree with that strongly. Number one, because there is sort of the mechanistic evidence that, that these glucose spikes are bad. And there are studies that show that it leads to worse health outcomes, high glucose variability versus like a more steady state. And also like, you know, like when you, when you eat a bunch of sugary cereal, you're gonna feel like crap in about an hour yeah. or like a bunch of pancakes. I love pancakes. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like shit in like an hour and a half. You feel like shit. Do you get totally starved later <laughs> yeah, and stuff like that? Know. That's all those crashes. So you wore, so you, it sounds like you guys both recommend you, you and you and Peter both recommend getting one of those and just sort of learning about how you respond yeah, to it's, food. It's, it, it's educational and you know, I don't wear it now, yeah. but I, I wore it for a couple months and you can just get them online somewhere. You need a prescription. Mm -hmm. Some of these sort of like online health companies, uh, there's one called Levels. It's expensive, but I would say like do it for a month or two. And see what you find out. And then you know like what what's your kryptonite. Yeah. So I know like, okay, knock off the bagels. Yeah. No more vegetarian tacos. Yeah. I mean, if you eat bacon all the time, you'll get a great CGM reading. Yeah. but So don't do that either. Yeah, but your LPA reading <laughs> might not be so good either. Yeah. So there's a lot of trade-offs yeah. to to sort of navigating your way. Yeah. So if you eat a bunch of saturated fat, you'll have a great CGM, but your APOB in some people, not all, some people could go through the roof. So right. it, it's 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 a trade-off. But you know, there's there's a lot of evidence that like we really harp on diabetes and metabolic dysfunction because you know that is the common risk factor. That's where the roots of, of all these um, diseases kind of, kind of meet, you know, 
metabolic dysfunction. How would you describe describe meta, metabolic dysfunction in plain English? Yeah, it's not it's not diabetes. It's like um, you have a difficulty handling glucose, basically, mm-hmm. and so obesity, right, is a symptom of that, and you're like your body's you know, well before you're obese and well before you have diabetes, you'll be in a situation of essentially caloric overload, right? And then your body's trying to, like I said, get the glucose out of your bloodstream. A lot of it ends up as fat. You start running out of good places to put fat, and then you start putting it in bad places, like in your abdomen. And then that leads to all kinds of other bad things. And then down the road, you get diabetes, yep. right? So you you don't even want to go down that road. So you don't want to be at the place where your doctor is like, well, you have prediabetes. And that's the first time your doctor is going to say anything. Right, right. So there's the glucose if monitor. There's the, there's the expanded blood panel. Yeah. He also talked about doing body scans to look for. Also, if, if you don't want to do or you can't get a, a continuous glucose monitor, you don't want to spend, you know, it's 100 or more a month and it's not yet available over the counter you can get an hba1c test and just see like and that gives oh, what, you like a what perspective. Test? Say it again. it's called hemoglobin a1c it looks for like a kind of like glycated hemoglobin basically the amount of sugar caused damage to your blood cells mm-hmm. that, that has taken place over the last month mm-hmm. and it gives you a percentage score and I think the threshold for diabetes is like 5.7, something like that. And you want to be way, way, way under that. You want to be below that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I might have that wrong. But I can check. I can check in the book. I can search. So, the, uh, so there's that. So you, the, there's the expanded blood pedal. There's the, um, uh, the continuous monitoring. He also talks about scans to potentially, even though you can get a lot of false positives, that you could see tumors or something like that ahead of time for cancer. What did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, there's, I think one of the most interesting things that we covered, so in cancer screening, right, there's like, turns out there's only tests for like five cancers. Right. There's mammogram for breast cancer. Lung cancer screening, um, PSA, prostate, uh, and colorectal. Colorectal, yeah. you know, I mean, that's a big, that's like the easiest one. Like, there's no excuse for not getting it. I mean, it's not even that bad. I think of it as like, I thought of it as like a cleanse followed by a really good nap. Um, and that's really an, an easy one to detect and to treat. They can treat it with the same instrument that they're detecting it with. And there's also Cologuard if you don't want to. Um, anyway, if, if you don't like. Uh, I've, done, I've done them both. I'm a big fan of all of it. Okay. But the next, that's five cancers. There's a lot more cancers than that, obviously. And the kind of the exciting frontier are these blood-based cancer screening tests. Um there's one by a company called Grail. Uh, it's called Galeri. And they look for um, basically shards of, of, of tumor DNA in your blood. It's like really hard to 
really hard to find. It's like a needle in a haystack kind of thing, but they're kind of getting better. Um, and there's several other companies that are that are um, working on similar tests. Um, uh, exact Sciences, which is the Colgard company, is is working on is is working on one. And then there's a company called Freenome that's also um, up there. And I think that's going to be a game changer as far as like early detection of cancer. And then, you know, it tells you like there's something going on and then you can go in and, and figure out what it is and get rid of it. Because, you know, early stage cancer is curable and treatable and you can make it go away. Late stage cancer is a whole different ballgame, yeah. as you know. Yeah. Yeah, we just had a dear mutual friend who just passed from that uh, yes. diagnosed at. Uh, and there's no screen for for stomach cancer. Stomach cancer. That's what she died of, yeah. Um, brutal. The uh, so did you go get those blood tests done? I intend to. I have not gotten the Galeri test. Okay, that seems like an interesting thing I, to do. The uh, yeah, it's a thousand bucks. Insurance doesn't pay for it, of course. It. But of course, they'll pay for and your then there's, expensive there's chemotherapy. <laughs> That's true. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. They won't pay for the test, but they'll, they'll pay a hundred thousand dollars for your chemo. <laughs> yeah. And we've had that in our family as well. Yeah. My mother died of breast um, cancer. I remember watching it very yeah. upfront close. And, uh, that is it. That's one more. You guys, I got the genetic test for, cause males can get breast cancer too. And I, my, my doctor did get that negative thing. So it seems like, this scanning this thing, it's it's really like the way you scan your computer for viruses. It's like a broader thing on prevention. Like I really felt like you kind of need to scan now for doctors if you have a primary care physician who are attuned to this way of thinking because the likelihood of them being alert to, hey, there's a new thing, you could do da, 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 da. You really need to find that. Yeah, and one thing that's been really kind of gratifying about um, – the reception of, of Outlive is is how many doctors I've encountered who have read it and are, are like on board. Oh, that's awesome. Like we we were seeing a doctor yesterday and he was like, you wrote that? I love that book. Like it changed my life. I've given it to all my doctor friends and we've all read it. And so I don't know, we might be starting a movement. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and I, you know, I was, as we were writing it, I was like, Oh boy, you know, why it's going to piss some people oh. off, which it probably has, but actually have the insurance companies really come out and said, most, Oh, we were so wrong. We're sorry for being such idiots. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. They did that. They did that <laughs> yeah. yesterday. <laughs> it was in the New York times, but the, the most enthusiastic readers that I've run into have been doctors. What's the connection between health and wealth? Well, there's a strong one. Um, there is lots of data showing that, that, you know, your income and even like your zip code has a huge impact on, on your health and your, your lifespan. But at the same time, and this is really interesting, um, you know, we've all seen that there there are lots of high net worth individuals. I mean, Peter's patients are, are wealthy people, 
Um, and a lot of the people responding to this book tend to, you know, I'm not going to stereotype, but like there are a lot of um, high net worth people who are, who are super interested in longevity. Let's put it that way. And it's the one thing you actually can't buy. That's right. And, and I would say even that having watched a lot of those people up close on wall street, a lot of the habits that uh, commensurate with, 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 which correlate with extreme wealth are incredibly unhealthy for your physical yeah. Yeah. wealth, yeah. your physical health and mental. Yes. And the two of them go together. Yeah. You, you can't buy mental health either. You can pay for all the therapists in the world. Um, but, you know, luckily, and we kind of get criticized for like, oh, this is like a rich person's approach to longevity. And I'm sort of like, you know, push-ups are free. And, and eating less all the push-ups is, you want. Eating, eating less is, is free too. Eating less is free too. You eat less and eat better, right? Yes. I think that's that's a good good approach. That's kind of what I try to do. So the prevention of stuff, what I loved about that is I'm kind of an a obsessive exerciser. I definitely say it's an addiction. And uh, what do you do? What's your what's your drug of choice? Probably the main one is is competitive rowing, like on the water. Um, but the uh, I'll mix in other drugs to try to to you know uh, outdoor swimming and balance skiing it and balance yeah. it out. Sometimes like that. Occasional game of tennis. But the main one that I really organizes around is competitive rowing. Nice. One of the things I really liked about the book was. Now, I was actually talking about it with people who I rode with this morning. I said the goal is, you know, the Super Bowl for rowing is head of the Charles, which is in whatever month. I said the right. goal is not to win head of the Charles. I said the goal is to have the exercise be part of these other things, sleep, diet, and social stuff that basically keeps us from dying. I said, that's what the goal is. Right. And I actually realized that one of the things I like about rowing is that before the row and after the row, there's a social element to it. Like you could, you could row in different size boats. Today I was rowing in a boat with three other guys and you're literally strapped in together in the boat. And there's, you know, there's trash talking back and forth and joking and finding, you know, <laughs> one of the, you know, one of the guys, you know, on a difficult night with one of his kids, there's all that type of stuff. And one of the things I liked about the book is that's also the point of sports, the relational part. Um, yeah. so it was, yeah. anyways, talk a little bit about the, uh, the prevention and how, um, you know, and what in that stuff you should be. I liked the suggestions and everything. Like I've read books on sleep. I know sleep is important, but I thought that your guys framing of sleep was super helpful in terms of how to, how to, how to achieve it. I loved the factoid about LeBron James sleeping 12 hours a night because we were like, yeah. yeah. That guy's like a sleep champion. He's like the sleep guy. Yeah, and and the fact about how little we know about nutrition. I liked that as well. So talk oh, talk yeah. about all that stuff. Hard to hard to study. Well, first of all, I think I want to take up rowing because you look basically the same as you did in, in in high school. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, we we went we went back and forth. You know, Peter first came on my radar. I think everybody's radar as as a nutrition guy, mm -hmm. and he was like hardcore, low carb diet yeah, guy yeah. and and also trying to like he had a nonprofit called uh nutrition sciences institute something like that and the idea was they were going to try and fund decent studies of nutrition which turned out to be a little harder than than um than they thought mm -hmm. for various reasons mm -hmm. but nutrition science is is garbage and you know 
any, basically any, any news story that you read about how like red meat causes cancer. It's, you know, take it with a, a grain of salt because, you know, a lot of it's based on surveys about what people eat. Right. Which nobody tells the truth or even can remember. Yes. Yeah. Nobody tells the truth. And I've tried doing one of those and, and I fill it out. Yeah. I like this. I like that. I like this. I like, that. no, I don't eat that. But yeah, it's, and, and the, and the, the effect sizes are so small that it's really hard to, to separate out. And, and, but you'll still find studies where like, you know, eating hazelnuts 13 hazelnuts can extend your life by five years a day versus the people who don't eat 13 hazelnuts. Like how the hell do you know? There, there's probably something, but it's a lot more complicated than, than that. And it's, it's this long-term thing. Right. And, and very much, very much an individual thing, which common sense also tells you, like some people will eat a slice of bread and gained enormous amounts of weight and other people just goes right through them and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Right. Back to the glucose right. monitoring. Um, you know, I had a, my, I had a grandmother who, um, my mom's mom who lived to be like 102 and she ate, she ate donuts. Yeah. I have one of those, but her body could just beat the glucose down. Boom, boom, boom. It was no problem for her. And then other people, if they did the same exact same thing she did in her life, they'd be diabetic by the age of 65. Yeah, I have I have one. So my mother died in her 40s from cancer. Her father, who was a heavy drinker and smoker, died at 102 in good health. And so it's like, like everybody has those stories in their families. And so it's, you, you, yes, there's some, like smoking is not good for you. That makes common sense. But this other sort of stuff just seems much more murky. And it was great to see it in writing because people are frigging confused because it is confusing to see all this stuff. And we're also anxious about dying. So if you see the thing about the hazelnuts, it sticks in your head. But it's sort of yeah, candy. Yeah, so, yeah. It's mental candy. You go, there are people who go out and eat the 13 hazelnuts yeah. a day and just make sure... Um, so they should study people like your grandfather, like the, the people who smoke and never get cancer. Yeah. I think, I think that's where like, like if you want to do like a startup, a biotech startup, you just find all those people, test the crap out of them, sequence their genomes, everything. What is it? How do they resist cancer? Yeah. Yeah. Probably learn something. I don't know if NIH is, is, would fund that study, but. We spent a long time on nutrition and, you know, this book took many and many iterations. Like first we had a really long, at first Peter didn't want to talk about nutrition actually, because he was so pissed off about like how bad the science was. I was like, Peter, we got to talk about nutrition. So this was the the chapter that, that almost killed us. And so then, all right, all right I'll just, I'll write a chapter based on things that, that Peter said in the past. He hated it. Like we didn't talk for like a month. <laughs> and okay, well, how do you uh, how do you actually deal with nutrition? Like, okay, I I, I don't know. I like I give my patients this continuous glucose monitoring. Like, like aha, okay, we're gonna we're gonna write about that. It's like no, it's not that interesting. No, it is interesting. Um, so we kind of boiled it down to like, okay, what's the one thing 
you can eat that will really get you in trouble. And that's too many calories. That's like the one, that's, that's the thing. Too many calories. If you're eating too many calories, then you, of whatever kind, but, you know, mostly carbs, but you're going to get this like fat buildup. And then what happens is fat spills over from the safe places to store. So like subcutaneous fat just below the skin, that's fine. And everybody has that, that little like soft layer. That's fine. Then it starts going other places, ends up in your liver, you know, then that starts to be bad. So, okay, we're going to, we're going to prevent, try to figure out how to eat fewer calories and how to reduce the glucose spikes. And that, that's basically the approach to nutrition. And then, then we went, you know, we went through a whole, th whole thing on, um, you know, there's a lot of questioning and a lot of back and forth and a lot of, unfortunately for me, revision. So at first we thought like fats were really important. And then, you know, we looked at like these massive um, Cochrane review studies. They're trying to be like the definitive studies. And they kind of didn't really come up with any definitive answers about fats. So, okay. So in protein, right? And then in the first version, our protein section was like two paragraphs long. And then we come back to it after a year. And we're like, you know, protein is actually pretty important because of its effects on muscle mass. And you need protein to build and maintain muscle that, mass. That helped me reading that because the only other prepo I've heard that from was bodybuilders. And I was like, well, that's not the shape I'm looking for. Like I'll sink my frigging boat if I look that. But then the like the guidance of how much protein you should eat per your body, I was like, oh, that's helpful. And I'm not getting anything close to that. And if I just get my pro if I get some calories there as opposed to eating the bread, I'd be also dealing with the sugar thing most likely. I was like, okay, that's a reasonable trade-off. Yeah. So bodybuilders are right for a change. Yes. Um <laughs> slightly trolling there. Um so yeah, so we we so we we did a we did kind of a one eighty on on that and you know there's some there's some actually pretty good studies of older people showing that like um, like there's one group that like lifted weights and they maintained muscle mass but didn't gain any and the only people who who gained muscle mass were the ones that also got like a protein shake. Mm -hmm. These are like older guys, like 70, but you know, it becomes, as we get older, it becomes harder as we know to, to keep the muscle mass. You got to keep at it. Right. Yeah. And so you need protein as like the kind of substrate to, to increase muscle mass. So, and that brings me to another like big change. Um, you know, when we, that, that in, in the book, um, you know, in the first version, there were two versions of this one pre COVID and then we took a break and then one post COVID mm -hmm. and stuff happened. You know, we, we kind of ended up not submitting it and we let it sit for a year, which, which was ultimately good. But one of the big changes, probably the biggest change was, was fasting. And Peter was super into fasting. He would do it once a quarter. He would, um, he would not eat for like, five or six days. And it was, it was a good time to not talk to him. Um, 
And, you know, fasting is one of those things that sort of mechanistically you can make a case for because it, it, there are good things that happen to the body and also at the cellular level when you're not eating all the time um, that have to do with like cellular maintenance processes. And basically I think evolution has, has hardwired us to be able to survive for periods without food, right? Lots of animals can, can live for a while without food. We can live for like a month without food. Right. It just seems to me that we have a lot of these processes that are uh, des- designed to allow us to survive. Yeah. That are all pre-industrial revolution. Yeah. And that the minute yeah. you and that's basically what we're living with right now. That that a lot of the problems we have in the world, health, environment, <clears throat> related to the fact is that we produce now more than we did in the past. We're probably the second generation that's had to deal with, or maybe even the first that's had excessive food. You know, we feed 8 billion easier than we did a billion. Yeah. And we're just not wired for it. And so it leads to, you really need to learn new skills to live in this, which is uh, basically it's, it's, it's sort of channeling asceticism for periods of time. That, that's, that's well put. Um, and there's a great book um, kind of on that theme called uh, The Comfort Crisis by uh, Michael mm. Easter. You mentioned that yeah. in the book. You know. the book. It's a, he's, he's great. It's a terrific book. But basically, it's an environmental problem. Like, we've created this environment where, you know, as I'm driving around town, you know, taking my kid to school or going to do this and that, there's so much food in my path. It's like, it's like I can almost not avoid eating a Big Mac, right? Yeah. And that that's – we're not – we're not prepared for that environment. Like I want to eat the Big Mac. Yeah. It tastes good. Not really, but it does. Um, and similarly, like um, we've engineered activity out of modern life as well. I'm driving around. I'm not like, I'm not like jogging around. I should be jogging around. Or Ten. even sports. Like I talked about the rowing. When did rowing start to become popular? In the 1830s. So it was the first time oh, that more yeah. than just the nobles began to have some sort of excessive wealth. They weren't necessarily chained to the land. And you still had all these competitive, these things that were there. And so people were like, oh, we'll just invent this thing to absorb that energy. Yeah. Yeah. Golf too, right? Right. Um, not, I mean, golf is exercise. If, if you play it like my dad does, then it's, then it's exercise. Yeah. It's like he's running a 10K. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be like out of breath, trying, you know, walking. He walks the course, and I would be like out of breath, trying to keep up with him, and then, and then trying to hit a good shot. You know, heart rate would be like one twenty. Could be a competitive thing too. So yeah, so that's maybe like a segue into, into the exercise portion. And, you know, ultimately we kind of decided that that really exercise trumps nutrition. Not in the sense that you can like outrow a bad diet, which, I mean, you can a little bit, but but just, you know, as, as you mentioned, like the, the correlation of, of between VO2 max and mortality 
or the inverse correlation is, is striking, like really yeah. striking. And, you know, there's a part of me that wonders if there is a genetic component to that or perhaps a, in, in, you know, the maternal, the, the mitochondria, which you inherit from your, from your mom. Um, but that was really stunning. We're like, okay, we have to pay more attention to exercise. And initially we were like, we're going to spend like five pages on exercise. We're not going to talk yeah, about but that stuff at But there's also the two of the things they also interrelate. Like one, one person I said, I talked to a friend of mine who's an athlete. He said, basically all athletes struggle, not struggle, but aim to re- reduce their caloric intake. Pretty much all, maybe sumo wrestlers don't, but pretty much all athletes, you know, they're attentive to their food and they look at the food more as fuel and less as, um, uh, recreation, uh, pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And you know, you're better at, um, certainly if you do, you know, what we call zone two, which is super trendy now, but it's basically going, you know, kind of like a jogging pace, you know, you're not going easy, but you're not busting your ass, right? You're just kind of like cruising. I think originally we called it all day pace, but which I still like, right? You can go, you feel like you can go a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on whatever you're doing, whether you're rowing or cycling or walking or running or whatever. Um, and your, your body likes that. Like everything, everything about your body, every part of your body likes that. Um, yeah it kind of like optimizes your ability to process fuel and create energy without creating like a burn. So it's sustainable. And and once you get your mitochondria used to that, they, they become better at, at handling not just glucose, but also fats as fuel. And so you become what they call metabolically flexible, right? So you can burn fat. And ironically, this is like the terrible irony, the people who are like out of shape and heavy and have lots of fat, they can't access their fat. Their mitochondria aren't, aren't good enough basically to, to, to handle fatty acids. They go straight to sugar. Then they go to these like glycolytic pathways for producing energy, which are inefficient and make you feel like crap. And mm. yeah, so it's the the skinny little whippet Tour de France cyclists. They can burn all the fat in the world, but they, just, they don't have any, right? Right. Um. So yeah, so that's that's zone two, and and you know, like if you get on an exercise bike, you can. There's all sorts of complicated ways to measure zone two in terms of like lactate, but nobody can measure, you can't really measure your lactate outside a lab or without a $500 monitor. But if you just get on an exercise bike and you start pedaling and you go faster and faster and you want to go to where like you can talk, but you can't really talk in like a complete paragraph, right? You have to like take a, take a breath here and there. You don't want to be, you know, joking and, and blah, 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 blah. 
but it, it's kind of in between where you can talk and where you don't really want to. That's your zone too. Yeah. And the, uh, and he, I think you guys recommended the book four 45 minute sessions of that a week. Um, yeah. which was, I talked about that with some, uh, of the rowers this morning and it was interesting. It's the same advice for competitive bicyclists. They said a lot of people who exercise, they, they go either super, they go, they go super hard and they don't do that baseline stuff or they're doing the baseline stuff. It creeps up. And what you really need to do is both the extremes like that, that zone two type of stuff. And then the back stuff Yeah, and go back and forth. Yeah. And, and a lot of time, a lot of times people who exercise a lot, they want to get into this like mediocre middle. Yes. That I think the, the physiologist will say it doesn't do that much for you. It's yes. still fine. I'm, I do that all the time. So I was training for an event over the summer and I kept my, you know, coach person kept yelling at me to like, you got to like keep the heart rate down, 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 down. Cause it was a long, you know, it was a long event. And then we'll do some intervals that you're not going to spend like the whole two hour ride at that, you know, right. 150 heart rate. Cause you're just going to feel like crap the next day. And you're, it's not, it's not useful training. One of my critique is too strong a word, but it struck me reading the book was from, and it's very, it's, it's a very subjective perspective because you've read my first book, uh, or you're reading it, raising a thief, you know, which has a whole, how does trauma work type of thing. Initially when I was reading the book, your guy's book, I was like, okay, Peter's a little bit obsessive. Like I've met triathletes like this. I've met other people like this and they just go, go, go. And I was like, I know that type of character and yes, we need to hold it's, it. It can get a little bit annoying when you deal with it closely. But then at the end of the book, there's like this revelation and I'm like, oh, the guy's scared and he's a control freak because early in his life, he was experienced something that would make you go completely out of control. Yeah, And part of his journey in life has just been to control everything, including death. Or, or as much as you can. And that only comes at the tail end of the book. Yeah. And maybe that's the right place for it. But it also, for me, it kind of, once I read that, it framed everything that went before. I was like, or not everything, but it certainly helped put into focus why a person would go into like these deep analysis of this thing relative to that thing. Yeah. You know, it, it was, um, you're talking about the last chapter of the book, which is about emotional health yeah. and Peter's journey. And it turned out that he had suffered some trauma and abuse early in his life. And I should make clear that that was not familial. That was mm -hmm. from outside the family, but, um, but it's still very, I mean, talk about something that's going to tangle your wiring. Yeah. And that whole story that is told that we tell in that chapter that was parallel with the writing of the book. Like the first time he went away to a residential treatment center was like the week before we met for, we officially met for the um, first work wow. session. We'd already met to, to agree to like, Oh, that sounds cool. We'll do it. But then we had to postpone because yeah. So this was all in parallel and you know, I, I watched it in, in real time, but Oh my goodness. Are you sort of saying it should have been first? The, the, Cause you're not the only person. Should it's, Listen, this, 
structure of a book is always a yeah. really, really, really complicated thing. And how to structure them is like an unbelievable chess game. Yeah. Um, I guess it, I was much more sympathetic with who he was when I understood that stuff. And I found that that's often true for somebody. If you see some sort of behavior that's really confusing, there's typically really good reasons for it, and often they're hidden. And this thing, it it only really came out at the very end. And for me as well, I was like, oh my God, this guy's like really difficult. We had a difficult time working together, you know, for the first year. And then as he went through his journey, we became friends. And, and, um, you know, he's, I can say like he's, and I think most of his friends will tell you like he's, much better person to be around now. And, and it's, it's an incredible transformation, but, you know, we did have readers who saw that chapter, um, who, who said like this, this should be the beginning. And when we submitted it, yeah, I think the beginning, the opening scene was he's in a cab going to the treatment place to figure out like, yeah, what the fuck is wrong with me? I could totally understand that opening. You know, I'm obsessed with longevity, but there's a great line from um, a therapist in there, uh, Esther Perel, who asks like, like um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, but you know, you spend all your time thinking about longevity and you're miserable. Why would you want to live longer if you're so unhappy? (laughs) (laughs) The question which which leads to my last last couple of questions. So the book is written like you're the writer. You're a great writer. You've been a great writer since you were in high school. But the whole book is written in the first person. So what's that like for so you? So it was like a mind like like a kind of a mind meld thing. Um you know, it took a while to really get to know Peter and to understand his voice. You know, he he had written a, a version of this book that was much more um, sciencey and more medical. And as I got to know him, I was like, you know, like your story is really interesting and how you came to be interested in longevity and how your thinking has evolved, you know, and he was, he was a straight up, he was going to be a cancer surgeon, you know, Mr. American medical association, you know, he was going to be like, he wanted to be like the best cancer surgeon. They realized like, yeah, like I love it. And we do these great, incredible operations. And then the person's dead in a year anyway. So yeah. what are we, what are we accomplishing here? And by the way, and right. when you try to make things better in the hospital, especially as a resident, they get pissed off. So what, yes. what are we doing here? Like I fuck this. I'm out. So we went off into right. consulting, worked for McKinsey and it was all about like credit risk because he's like really a math guy, kind right. of at heart. Right. But anyway, a lot of this stuff, I was like, this is super interesting. And your own journey is is super interesting. And like all of it, like he wasn't even a good student. He wanted to be a boxer in high school, you know. Which relates, which relates to, to the- I looked at that yeah, and that, that, that relates sense, to the trauma. Right? And I was like, oh, of course it makes sense. Yeah, and he, he takes, as his wife said, he takes everything to the nth degree. You know, he didn't even know how to swim when he went to medical school. He took swimming lessons, and then like two years later, he's like swimming the Catalina Channel. Like, 
stream yeah, exactly. down. Just like infested with great whites. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So he's an intense guy. Um, but making it more of a story was kind of my job. And so we had to come to like this voice that was kind of in between his voice and my voice. Like we had to make it like, my goal was to make it compulsively readable. Like you couldn't yeah. put it down. And it's tough when you're talking about like, you know, lipoproteins. <laughs> and like every time I would write cholesterol, you'd exit out and go lipoproteins. <laughs> so after about a year, I was like, you know, you're right. They are lipoproteins, but um, how do you make that jargon go down, go down easier? It's very tough. And put it in a milkshake. It's very tough. Right. Well, I, you know, I talk, I write about money a lot yeah. and it's a really, really, cause everybody care, like people care about health and they care about money. Yeah. And by the way, there's a really tight relationship between oh, yeah. the two of them. It's great longevity. But, the, uh, money. but, it, but, but if you talk about, if you begin to talk about how money really works and you go, the minute you say the words central banking, it's like instantly like your, your, your listenership just drops by like 90% and probably lipoprotein or something like that. It's <laughs> just saved the thing. Oh, and then, then the other 10% are going to have a vicious argument about it. <laughs> okay. The, uh, the podcast is called Things I Didn't Learn in School. So the whole book is basically Things I Didn't Learn in School. But I ask all the guests, you know, what's the, you know, going through this process, what are the biggest things you took away that you didn't learn in school? Apart from wishing that I had maybe gone the pre-med route so I could address some of these things head on. Um, you know, thinking about that, that emotional health chapter was, was tough. And, you know, the first versions of it, which Peter wrote, were really raw and like tough to read. And, you know, it was, it was tough to read that like, my friend had kind of gone through these things, even in real time as we were working on the book. And so it's made me think about that a lot more. Um, and, you know, you and I grew up in a, in a culture where it was all about, um, it was very achievement oriented, shall we say, Washington, DC. Yes. And it was all about going to an Ivy League college and like you can check that box and still have a terrible time yeah it's right? so true and still not be okay with yourself or okay in your own skin and so really and you know i don't have issues to the degree that peter did but you know, it's not a competition right you have to be to some extent, like kind of content. You have to enjoy your life also at a more superficial level. I, I want that joy to be a part of my life as much as possible. It's good for the soul, but you know, on, on a deeper level in school, certainly you don't get the, the tools to, to, you know, be happy with yourself. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely 
touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.